0: Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. But you know, there are a lot of things we do that we just simply do because we've always done it. We've always done it. What Stephen ran into when he ran into this man named Jesus is he suddenly had this dilemma in his life. This faith that now filled his life was a faith in really who God was, not who the traditions were. See, so he had this faith in God, who, who he is, what, what God had done. And then it even let him to have faith in what God will do. You see, true faith in God not only lets you look back at, at, at who God is and, and at what he's done in your life, but it lets you look forward at what he is about to do. This morning, as we sat around the tables, a group of men looking at our Sunday school lesson, someone brought up how wonderful it is to read the book of John. Because not only do you see the love of God for you, but you see the promises of God for you. You see, we need to realize faith in God not only points backwards at who God is and, and permanently today right in our life at, at what He's doing, but it also points to those things ahead of us. Faith in those things that he will do from the promises of his word, not from things that we, we ask him for, but for what he's promised us that he will do. See, Stephen had no question in his mind that the God who had saved him was, was a capable and willing God to save. And in, the, in his mind, this made God faithful. He, when he thought about this God, he thought of this God as a faithful God. And a proper response to a faithful God is faith in God. See, when you really understand that God is faithful, your faith in him should grow. He had faith in the ability of God to save him. He had faith in the ability of God to keep him in all circumstances. And he had the faith in God and his ability to save others. There's a sermon itself right there. Sometimes we think God can save us. But he can't do anything with that drug addict down on the corner. Sometimes we think God has the power to raise us up from death and sin, but maybe not that adulterous neighbor that we know. You know, sometimes we think God has the power to, to save us and send us to heaven, but not that grouchy old coworker. You see, what Stephen realized is he knew who he was before he bumped into this man named Jesus. And he realized what I realized. If God has the power to save me, he has the power to save anybody. You see, because I knew who I was, and I know what he saved me from. And when I realized he has the power to save a person like me, I have faith that he also has the power and is willing to save others. Just like me, or better than me, or even worse than me. And we see this in the life as it's it's written about Stephen here in Scripture. But having faith was not enough in itself. You see, many people have faith in many things. In fact, many people claim to have faith in God. They really do. Do you realize the latest polls in America say the majority of people that live in America have faith in God? They relate themselves to be Christians. Does anybody watched the news lately? Does the statistic line up with the reality we see in the world today? Yet they claim to have faith in God. <laughs> but there's a major difference in having faith there is a God and faith in God. There is a world of difference in those two things. You see, and that difference shows up in the life of a true believer. Do you realize Satan believes there is a God? Satan understands there is a God, but his life does not demonstrate faith in God. You see, Satan knows there's a God. There's no doubt in his mind. But he has no faith in God. And unfortunately, there are many who say they have faith in God who call themselves Christians who show no evidence of him in their lives. And why is that? Why is that? It is the second thing that that Stephen was full of, which is the Holy Spirit, which which gave him this power in the eighth verse that that we read about. And I know that you may already be thinking to yourself, "Uh, Pastor, doesn't everyone who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior get the filling of the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that question is, is yes. The answer is yes. How do we know that? Acts 1. Acts 1 told us that they were to hang around after Jesus left. He was going to send a comforter of the Holy Spirit to them. And all those who believed in that room were filled with the same Holy Spirit. They were all filled. Yes. I don't think the question is, do we have the Holy Spirit in us? I believe the question then becomes, does the Holy Spirit fill us? You see, you read in Scripture about the quenching of the Holy Spirit. You read about a lot of things. You see those that were there that were filled with the Holy Spirit. But you see some that stand out in the narrative. Just like the glass of water I mentioned earlier, you can have a glass of water without it being full. We all realize that. There can be both water and air in the glass, so to speak. But how many of you want to go to a restaurant? How many of you want to go to a restaurant after I get through this afternoon? You go in, you order yourself the buffet meal, you tell them you'll have a glass of water, you Already a little upset, they charge you $2 for a glass of water, but then it shows up at the table and it's only half full. And they tell you that's all you get. How many of you would like to show up and and be expected to eat the entire buffet meal and only have half a glass of water to wash it down with? None of us would. We'd feel like we'd been cheated, now wouldn't we? we? We paid for a glass of water or a glass of Coke or whatever it may be. We expected that glass to be full. We also expect them to come out and refill that glass as necessary. What if they set down your tea, your sweet tea, on the table with ice cubes in it, a beautiful-looking half-full glass of tea, and said, "Good luck. That's all you get." We'd feel cheated. See, the same is true of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, a, a Christian. Many people want the full transformation of their life by God through the work of Jesus Christ, but they only want to allow him to have access. To certain parts. I want to be completely changed. I want to be completely changed. I want to be be saved by Jesus. I no longer want to be that person I was. I want to be a new person. But God I only want you to have access. To this piece. And this piece. You leave the rest alone. (laughs) They, They want to eat the whole buffet. But they only want a half full glass of water. Of the Holy Spirit. To to really be a disciple of Jesus Christ, a true Christian, you must have faith in God. And and to tell Him He can be your Savior but cannot be your Lord is to not have faith in God. See, to just look at Him, to punch your ticket so that you know you wind up in heaven and then look and say, hey, until the day you call me home, I've got this, that's not being a Christian. That's not being a disciple. Of Christ. The reason so many so called Christians only want a half glass full of of Holy Spirit is because they still want to be Lord over certain things in their life. Been a great place for an amen. Because you know what I know about you? The exact same thing I know about me. That's true. Because you know what it means to not completely surrender to God and want to hold on to pieces of your life? You know what the fruit of that is? Sin. See, it's those areas we hold on to that produce the fruit of sin in our lives. It's those things that we want, the the things that we tell God, "I'll, I'll take your salvation, but leave what I do in my life up to me. I've got this. You see, Stephen demonstrates what it really means to be a disciple of Christ by his faith in God and the complete surrender to the Holy Spirit in his life. You see, and that leads us to that second word there in verse 8 when it says power. It says he did great wonders and signs among the people. See, complete surrender to the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer leads to God doing great things in and through you. God doing great things in and through you. We, we don't surrender so that we can do great things. No, we surrender so that God can do great things. And see, why was Stephen willing to surrender his life to God and so God could do great things? See, Stephen knew three things about his life as a disciple. He knew three things about his life as a disciple. And it is these three things we need to have clear in our minds as we are disciples of Christ also. See, the first thing that Stephen knew is this. He had a purpose. Stephen knew he had a purpose. I've said it many times from this pulpit. If salvation was the end of what God wanted for you, explain to me why you're still here. Because salvation, going to heaven, if that's the end goal, Why are we still here? It makes no logical sense in my mind that that if the only reason Jesus came was to die on a cross so I could go to heaven, if I accept him as my Lord and Savior, why? Why am I still here? Why was I not taken to heaven at that moment? It's because we each have a a purpose. You've heard me say from this pulpit before in error that our purpose to be here was to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. How many would think that would be our purpose? You're smart not to raise your hand. I've already told you that was an error. That is not our purpose. That is our mission. What is our purpose? Our purpose is the same purpose that that Stephen saw. To bring glory to God by being the image of Christ and worshiping Him in spirit and truth. Everything we do needs to revolve around the fact that we are to glorify God in this life that we live by being the image of Christ in this world and worshiping Him in spirit and truth. That's our purpose. That's what what Stephen saw as his purpose. Second, he knew that he had this mission. And what was the mission? It was to live out the gospel-transformed life in the lives of others. That they may live out a gospel-transformed life in the life of others. To make it simple, he was to be a disciple making disciples. This is exactly what Jesus told us that we were supposed to do in Matthew 28. Go into all the world and make disciples. Realize he never said go into all the world and save people. He said, go into all the world and make disciples. But there was a third thing that Stephen also knew. He knew that God had a vision and therefore it became his vision. His his vision became that God would be glorified in him, in in that city that he was in, in the region that that he would be ministering in, all the way to the ends of the earth. And he he was going to do that. He was going to be part of that glorifying God because God had this vision of himself being glorified in all people to the ends of the earth by by living out this gospel-transformed life from generation to generation, from, from not only those who were like him, but those who were not like him, and then leading them to become worshipers of God. What a beautiful picture in Stephen's life as he, as he saw this. That's how he could do what he did in chapter 7, we'll get to next week. And the only way that the world will be transformed is for disciples, for the disciples of Jesus Christ to have faith in God and be filled by the Holy Spirit for the sole purpose of God being glorified in their life. And see, that's what happened with the church. That was the purpose of the church. That was why it was formed. You see, but guess what happens when you live out a, a true disciple of Jesus Christ's life in this world. See, that's where Satan attacks. See, that's where Satan attacks. Don't raise your hand, but I'll ask you a question this morning. Has Satan been attacking you lately? The answer to that question is no, there may be a reason. You're not living out a discipled life of Jesus Christ. It's the bottom line. If you were doing what Christ had called you to do, in making disciples of others, I will guarantee you this, Satan would be messing with you. He was messing with the early church. We see it. We see it plainly. And often he attacks through those who claim to be what you are, but are in fact not true disciples. He often uses those who are in the church, but are not fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit or or God's mission for the church. And we we've seen that in Acts. And what we see that happens here in the, In the life of Christ. What do we see that happens in the life of Stephen here? It it comes through a group that are introduced to us in Acts 6-9. That very next verse, after it says Stephen was full of faith and and power and he did great wonders, it it jumps to the other side of the story in in verse 9. And in verse 9 it says, Then there arose from among what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. We have one of those around here anywhere that you (laughs) know of? Me either. I had to stop and look. What's a synagogue of a freedman? I know what it is to be a Baptist or a Catholic or a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Free Will Baptist, but what is a synagogue of a freeman? Thank the Lord, he kind of gives us a little idea when he mentions the people that are members of that church, so to speak, this synagogue. The first members are the Cyrenians. I found it very interesting because Cyrenians come from a place called Cyrene, which is pretty easy to figure out. It comes from Cyrene. This is a city that's actually in the northern part of Africa as we understand it now. And it was a prominent city, but it happens to be a city that is directly connected to Jesus and the cross and his way to a hill. Do you remember there was a guy who was compelled to pick up the cross and carry it for Jesus? Do you remember where he was from? Cyrene. It's kind of an interesting connection. really has nothing to do with this story, but it's a nugget you get for free. I won't charge you anything for that one. The next group that we see there are the Alexandrians. The Alexandrians, they're they're from the city of Alexandria, another city in North Africa. It was a prominent Roman city, so to speak, This had a Roman influence in it. What's so special about this Alexandria, this this particular city? As we flip on over through Acts and the days ahead, you're going to run across a guy named Apollos, a preacher named Apollos, a great preacher. Uh, Guess where he came from? Yes, you got it. Alexandria. He came from Alexandria. He came from a Jewish tradition, which gives us a little understanding of that city, how it was very well influenced by the Jewish traditions of the day, the Jewish traditions. The the next place it mentions there actually combines a couple for you. It says uh, Cilicia and Asia. Cilicia and Asia, they're both uh, Roman provinces in in the Asia Minor region of the the country at that particular time. And and we know there was a strong uh, Jewish presence there because it was the hometown of Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus happens to be one of those uh, cities which is located in Cilicia. Saul of Tarsus, if you remember Saul of Tarsus, as we'll find out in the days ahead, persecuted the Christian church because they didn't hold to the Jewish tradition. So we know there was a strong Jewish influence in all of those areas. So therefore, the synagogue of the freedmen must have been a, a group that, that stood then on the, on the laws of the Jews. I think if we had to say anything about them, maybe we would say they were devout Jews. So here are these that are supposedly have faith in God and are very devout. And look what it says. It says there arose some from what is called this, this synagogue of the freemen, and they were disputing with Stephen. Well, what is there to argue about? They have faith in the same God. Why would there be a dispute? Look at what happens. It says... What is it that they had disputed with about Stephen? It tells us in verse eleven. It says in verse eleven, then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard them him speak blasphemous words against Moses. Wow, against Moses? What's so important about this Moses character? See, the words of Moses we know to be the laws given to the Jews at uh, the basis of those being the Ten Commandments, so to speak. This this set of rules and regulations that were added to by the Jewish tradition to stretch them to some two or three, four hundred little laws to make sure they didn't break the 10 they just piled upon this Moses's laws so to speak these other laws and along with these commandments would have been the other laws traditions and and all they governed this this life of the Jews it had been those things that they held dearly to to prove that they were in relationship with God so so they stuck to this this group of laws to them the law of Moses held greater greater authority than even the words that were being spoken by Jesus himself. You see, they went back to what is called the book of the law, the first five books of your Bible. And they held firmly to those things. It also says that they induced them to say that Stephen said blasphemous things against God. What was it he was saying that was against God? What was it that he was bringing up that's against this, this God that they they both had faith in? What was it that was so blasphemous that he would be brought before a council in a few minutes. See, if you remember Matthew 28, here's exactly what he was doing. He was doing exactly what Jesus had told them to do and us to do. He said, teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And what had Jesus told them that was so radically different about who this God is than what those Jewish people believed him to be? What was it that was so radically different in what Jesus taught? See, he started off by saying, you know what? Jesus stood before him and said, I am God. (laughs) Whoa. For the longest time, they had seen God as this distant character behind a curtain in a temple that no one could go in and be in his presence. And here stands this Jesus before him and says, when you see me, you've seen the Father. I am God. He also told them that he had come with a purpose, as you heard me tell the children this morning. He had come to seek and to save, which was radically different than what the Jews saw. See, the Jews saw it being all about them seeking to save themselves, them chasing God, them taking care of the rules and the regulations to make sure they were in God's presence. Jesus stood before them and said, I am God and I have come to find you. What a radical difference. See, and then he told them that this sacrificial system that they had counted on to to mend their relationship, this, this day of atonement, all these things that they had done was now done away with. That he, he and he alone, was the new sacrifice. He said it this way, I'm the only way. I'm the only truth. I'm the only life. You talk about turning a religious system upside down. Jesus did it. And he told the disciples, just like he's telling us, go and tell the world this message. Teach them. Teach them to observe all of these things. And for those devout Jews, the world, the religious world was being turned upside down. And for Satan, (laughs) for Satan, this caused a great big problem. You see, he had thrown everything he had at Jesus. He had thrown everything he had at him to stop him. All the way to the cross, he had thrown everything he had right to the point of on the cross, thinking that when Jesus was dead, it had stopped. But he found out three days later, he hadn't won a thing. He hadn't won a thing. That death did not stop Jesus, death gave him the the opportunity to rise from the dead and demonstrate to us that there is eternal life in him. So Satan had thrown all that he had had at him, everything, and could not stop him. Jesus had won. And now Satan was using church leaders and anything that he could use to stop that message from being spread. Because he wanted people to be religious. He wants you to be religious. He wants you to keep to the law. He wants you to try to do good. He wants you to depend on your efforts. Because you know what he knows? That won't save you. He wanted the synagogue to continue to stand on the law of Moses. Because as long as they stood on the law of Moses, they'd never trust in Jesus. And as long as they never trusted in Jesus, their eternity was a place called hell and Satan would win. You see, and he was just infuriated. But verse 10 tells us verse ten tells us that there was a little problem with their whole scheming. It says they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which the Stephen spoke. You see, Stephen didn't stand up with his own logic and reason and lay out a plan and say, this is the way I see it. This is what I believe it to be. No, he stood up and said, thus says the Lord. And this, this wisdom came from the, the word and, and the spirit was what gave him the power. See the importance of holding firm to the word of God. That, that is the wisdom that, that could not be resisted. It wasn't an argument about the minds. It was the ones that were religious Against the word of God. You know what I know about that argument? God always wins. God always wins. You see, it's, the Bible is the answer to all things. It is what we should turn to first. Not when everything else fails. See, it is the only truth. No matter what anyone says, this is truth to me. No, there's only one truth. His name is Jesus. There's only one word of truth, and it's called the Bible that you hold in your hands this morning. Also know the importance of the word holding firm to you. You see, he was filled with this spirit, which means the spirit worked within him to bring alive in him this this truth of God's word. Let me tell you this, brothers and sisters in Christ. If the word you read doesn't first affect you, it's going to affect no one that you speak it to. Trust me. Before I ever stand in this pulpit, open the Bible and say, thus says the Lord. This Bible opens me and says, thus I say to you, Roger. It speaks to me first before it ever speaks to you. And it should be that way in your life. It should have a grip on your life. And it would so grip Stephen's life, it says they had no opportunity. There was no way they could resist him. There was no, they had no dog in the fight. God was doing the fighting. God was doing the fighting. So what did they do? They coerced others, it says. They went and found some others. It tells us in, in verse 12 that they went and found some that, that would lie. It says they, they stirred up, in verse 11 and 12. And in 12 it says they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes. And so they were out inciting amongst the people. It says they, in verse 13 it says they even set up a false witness. You know, this reminds me of something. There was a man named Jesus. that was taken to court after court after court one night. And those that spoke against him were called what? False witnesses. They spoke lies. They spoke lies. See, the only way they could refute what they knew to be true, what had been evidenced the truth through the power of the Holy Spirit that Stephen was speaking, the only way they knew to combat that was to lie. And it's interesting because in those lies they had included enough truth to kind of make it palatable. You ever notice Satan works like that? Satan has his little lies that he tells you with just enough truth that if you haven't been reading the word for yourself, you're kind of blown, as it said in our Sunday school lesson this morning, to and fro. Because you, you hear pieces, yeah, that that there's some truth to that, and you assume the rest of it's true. See, look at verse 14. It says, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. Had Jesus said that? Had Jesus said that about destroying this place, this temple? The answer is yes and no. See, everything is in context. And he had kind of said that. If you remember the parable, I think it's John 2. In John 2, Jesus referred to this temple as being his body. And he said to those around them that if you destroy the temple, go ahead, destroy the temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Was he speaking about the literal temple that was standing there? No, he was speaking about himself. He was prophesying about the fact that they would hang him on the tree and destroy this temple. And three days later, he would be raised. He would be raised. So they included this little nugget of this truth that, yes, he had said something kind of similar to that. But they took the truth and they twisted it to support their narrative, what it was they wanted to do. They desired to stop this movement of Christianity and were willing to lie to do it. Here were the church leaders. Notice the list that it gave us there. It said they stirred up the people, yes, but also the elders and the scribes. It was the leaders. They stirred them up with this lie. And isn't it interesting that the law they held so dearly to, I believe it's Exodus twenty sixteen. 2016 says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now here they were complaining that he was going against the law of Moses and what were they doing? Going against the law of Moses. Isn't it interesting how those who really don't have faith in God and a true discipleship relationship with Jesus Christ take bits and pieces of things that have partial truth even when it goes against What they stand so firmly on, and they use it. They use it against those who have a strong relationship with Jesus. See, that's the problem with basing your relationship on rules. The rules are there to prove to us that we cannot be good enough for God to accept us. We are when we're subjected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It causes this crisis in our life. Quite honestly, it causes a crisis for us. See. Are we able to have a right relationship with God because we keep all his commandments? See, when we run into Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, haven't we been good enough? Haven't I walked enough old ladies across the street? Haven't I given enough money to to good causes? Haven't I done this and that for people? We have to ask ourselves, have we done enough? There's only one problem. On the scales, we know what we've done, but we don't know the weight that God's going to put on the other side to see if it balances. See, there is a weight. That weight's a man named Jesus Christ. And the law was given to us to prove we can't be what Jesus Christ was when He walked this earth. Impossible. So therefore the only way to have a right relationship when we run into that confrontation, when we run into confrontation with truth, the only way to a right relationship with God was for us to understand what Jesus had done for us. And it re- requires us to surrender our lives to him, not choose the law. But what these men did was choose the law. They chose the law over Jesus. And it says they could not win that fight. And look at how the dispute affected those as I close this morning. Look at how the dispute affected those. It says in verse 15, And all who sat in the council, who were those that sat in the council? It would have been those elders, those scribes, maybe some of the people, the leaders of that synagogue. It, it would have been the religious leaders that sat in the council. And it says, all those who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Hmm. What an interesting statement. They saw his face as the face of an angel. It does not mean that he was transformed into an angel in their presence. Don't don't think that's what it means. But what what they did see <laughs> would kind of remind you of what you would expect to see in an angel. Where are the angels at now? In the presence of God. We, we read about them as they stand around his throne singing, holy, holy, holy. So by being in the presence of God, there must therefore be some kind of image of God that is projected from them, sort of like the sun and the moon relationship. You know, the moon shines at night, but not of its own strength. It shines from the power of the sun. It's just a reflection. The moon is just a reflection. But what do you think they saw that reminded them of an angel? Maybe it was peace. Maybe it was love. Maybe it was compassion. Maybe it was a certain joy or this steadfastness or this composure that he had. I think more than anything, they saw someone who was in the presence of God. They saw the image of Jesus Christ. That brings me to how this narrative applies to our life. Because if you remember, there's one other time in Scripture that it's mentioned that there was one that had this face that was changed when they bumped into Jesus. Remember I mentioned to you earlier the Ten Commandments. Do you remember what happened when Moses came down off of that mountain? He had to veil his face. He had to veil his face because he had been in the presence of God and it just shone radiantly about him. And that's the picture I get when it says here that they, they saw his face as the face of an angel. Let me ask you a question. Do others, when they look at you, see someone who's been in the presence of God? Do As a disciple of of Jesus Christ, we're called to bring glory to God by being the image of Christ and worshiping Him in spirit and truth. Do others see that in you? See, when they see you, do, do they see your face as the face of an angel? Is there something different about you than those who don't know Jesus? Do you desire, do you have this desire in your heart to glorify God in everything that you do? Because of what he's done for you. Are you daily becoming more like the image of Jesus Christ? Do you worship him? Do you worship him in spirit and truth? In other words, going to him with an open heart saying, Reveal to that within me that is a sin against you, that I might fall on my face on your grace and mercy and ask for forgiveness of sins so that my fellowship with you may be sweet. So that I may get up from my knees having a face as an angel of God you know if we spend time with God if we are truly open and honest with God about the sin in our life if we look for repentance so that our relationship with him is sweeter if he is truly lord of our life others will see God's glory all over your face are you about the mission of God do you trust in the fact that Jesus said to go into all the world and make Disciples. You're to lead them to a personal relationship with Him, which is signified by telling them to be baptized, as it says in Matthew 28. Make disciples and you baptize them. Baptism, an outward sign of of an inward change. Are you teaching them all that you've learned about this Jesus in your life? Are you rubbing up against them with the truth of the Word? Are you living out a gospel transformed life in the life of your neighbors? that they may come to know Jesus and live out the gospel-transformed life and the life of those that they know. See, are you a disciple who is making disciples? Do, Do you have the vision of God? Do you have the vision of God for what He desires for you personally and for His church in this world? That God, first and foremost, would be glorified in you. That you would live to the glory of God. That not only that, but He would be glorified in this community of Curry. That it would stretch out to all of North Carolina and from there to the uttermost ends of the world. Do you have that vision that God wants there to be worshipers of him as it was when he created this world? How will this happen? By having a gospel transformed life. A gospel transformed life that passes that on from generation to generation. We talked about it in a men's Sunday school class this morning. Someone brought up the fact that so many people think when you reach a certain age, you've done all your duty to the church and now you can retire. I found what they said beautiful. You know, there are people, young people, walking around this church and in this world that need to know what it means to be a disciple of Christ. There's not a person in here, no matter your age, whether you're 62 or 102, that can't live out a gospel-transformed life in the presence of those children you saw sitting on this floor passing that from generation to generation in the hopes that they become a disciple of Jesus Christ and pass that to the next generation that, let's face it, you and I may never see. I realize I have more years behind me than I have in front of me. The life of the church was sitting at my feet this morning. It is no longer at my feet. We need to live that out. It starts with a true personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Confessing to God... Coming to Him and confessing those sins in our life and repenting. Asking Jesus to save us. To save us from eternal separation from God in a place called hell. Turning over our life to Him. To the Holy Spirit's working in our life to use us in transforming the world for God. And it should be growing. It should be growing in us and showing out of us in every aspect of our life. From our time sitting in here together to our time at the restaurant after this to our time at the store later today when we stop to get gas. Jesus Christ should be evident from the angelic glow on our face from having been in his presence. And it should lead us to make disciples that there will be more and more worshipers of our God. You know, maybe today, maybe today you've come to realize you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you've come to realize that you don't glow because you don't know. You don't know him. You know, eternal life is not a game. It's a long thing. And I'll tell you, I believe with all of my heart what the Bible says, that at your death, there are only two places that you have the opportunity to go. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, which means you say you trusted him for your salvation, to save you from what you were, and Lord, to make you into what He wants you to be, if you've never taken that step, then your destiny is a place called hell. There's no way around it. To be in the presence of God, you must be righteous. None of us can be righteous in and of ourselves. We can only be righteous through what His Son, Jesus Christ, did on our behalf. Maybe this morning you realize you're not sure you've ever had that relationship. You know it's serious. None of us are promised tomorrow. I'm not a preacher that pushes you into making a decision. I'm not one that extends invitations and hopes that conviction will fall and you'll come just to get me to stop singing just as I am. I want to be honest with you. We learned this morning in Sunday school that we should speak the truth in love. Hear my heart. I love you enough to tell you that without my Jesus, eternity is a place called hell. And eternity is a long time. All you have to be willing to do is recognize you've made a disaster of your life by being the Lord. You've chosen to sin against God. No matter how you tried to keep the laws, it has not strengthened your relationship with the Almighty God, it has hurt it. And this morning you come just saying, you know what? You're right. I've made a mess. I've got good news. There's a mess fixer and his name is Jesus. See, Jesus came and stretched out his arms on the cross and died for you, just like he did for the guy hanging on the cross next to him. When the guy hanging on the cross next to him said, truly, you must be the Son of God. You are who you say you are. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. You know what he's saying to you this morning? If you've never taken that step to trust in me as your Lord and Savior, guess what? I died for you. I died for you because I loved you. That's what the Bible says, for God so loved the world. I died that you might have a right relationship with the Father. All it takes is for you recognizing you've made a mess of your life, but there's one that can straighten it out, and his name is Jesus. Come and trust in what he did for you. Come, I'll be glad to explain to you what that means. That means asking for forgiveness, repenting of those sins, and turning away from those to follow Jesus as a disciple for the rest of your life. You know what that gives you? It gives you this place called heaven. But you know what makes heaven so sweet? I don't even believe it's the streets of gold or the crystal sea that flows. You know, I'd love to see those. I'd love to see a gate the size of a pearl, yeah. But you know what I really want to see? It's not even the loved ones that have gone before me. I want to look in the eyes of one that loved me so desperately that he stepped from that place with streets of gold, with a crystal sea, where it never turns night. He stepped from that place into a world that He made that had turned its back on Him and stretched His arms at a cross to say, I love you. I love you with my life. You see, heaven's not about a place, it's about a person, Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.